Why Catholic is made possible by generous patrons. If you're blessed by this podcast, consider supporting it by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Link is in the show notes. Original designs on sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, decals, and more. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks for supporting Why Catholic. Picture yourself in the Exodus story for just a moment. A stranger by the name of Moses comes on the scene talking about some God freeing the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery. You've never known anything but slavery. Where will I go, you wonder? You've never known anything but living in Egypt. Suddenly, strange phenomena start happening. Water turns to blood. Livestock die. There's plagues of frogs and gnats. Then this Moses character starts giving you some strange instructions like, Find a one-year-old male lamb or goat without spot or blemish, slaughter it, and smear the blood on your doorposts. He tells you that in the morning, everyone's going to leave. What do you say? Do you tell him, this is crazy? Do you say, nah, I'll take my chances here? Do you think that maybe there's another opportunity to freedom at a later date with a less eccentric leader and set of instructions? Or do you do what he says in order to escape slavery? Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. We're in the middle of a series on the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We've been focusing on the notion of the mystical union of the church. In other words, how has God designed a church to spiritually unify us across time and space? Today, I want to address the following question. Why does the Catholic Church believe that outside the church, there is no salvation? This statement likely ruffles some feathers. The secular world scoffs at the idea that salvation is exclusive rather than inclusive. Non-Catholic Christians, such as Protestants, think that this statement from the Catholic Church is manipulative and elitist and undermines God's sovereignty and saving mercy. So today, I want to talk about this idea that outside the church, there is no salvation. What does the Catholic Church mean? and not mean by this statement. First, I want to show you a pattern that follows the story of Exodus. Let's start with the story of the great flood found in Genesis 6. When God was going to levy judgment on the earth, he provided an escape plan for Noah and Noah's family. It's funny to think about the puzzled looks a 500-year-old Noah probably got as he built this monstrous boat in the middle of the desert. Did people mock him mercilessly? Did he ever question whether this task was truly from God or a preposterous imagination? But when the rains came, only those that went into the ark with Noah survived. There was no other lifeboat to be found. Fast forward to when the Hebrews finally entered the promised land. They spied out a city called Jericho with the help of one of its citizens, Rahab, a prostitute. They offered Rahab a chance to escape the city's doom, but it required her to follow specific instructions. She would have to hang a scarlet cord from her window, and everyone that wanted to be rescued had to be in her home with her. When Jericho was reduced to rubble, only those in Rahab's house were spared. And where did Rahab go? She joined the Hebrews, became one of them, and she became an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. I could bring up a number of other examples, like the Hebrews crossing the Red Sea or crossing the Jordan River, the plague of venomous snakes and the remedy of a bronze snake on a pole. But hopefully this small sample is enough to show you that salvation in the Bible follows a pattern that includes two key facets. First, God provides salvation through specific requirements and pathways. And secondly, salvation occurs within the context of community. If you didn't get in the boat with Noah, 
you didn't survive the flood. If you didn't put blood on your doorposts with the rest of the Hebrews, your firstborn would have died. If you didn't leave Egypt with Moses, you likely never escaped. If you didn't cross the Red Sea with the Hebrews, when the waters parted, you got left behind. If you weren't in Rahab's house when Jericho was attacked, you were slaughtered. Do you see how these stories of salvation require following specific requirements with a greater community? This theme continues in the New Testament as well. In John 3, Jesus explains how one enters into salvation. He says, quote, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, end quote. Over and over, Jesus tells us to believe and be baptized. In Acts 2, when the crowd hears Peter preaching and becomes convicted, they ask, what must we do to be saved? Peter responds by saying, quote, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, end quote. Whereas the path to salvation for the Hebrews was passing through the Red Sea, the path to salvation following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus was through the waters of baptism. It is not merely an action, it is an act of faith. To go through the Red Sea took an enormous amount of trust, following God to the great unknown on the other side of the sea. In the same way, baptism must never be merely emotion or formality. It is a deliberate dedication to following Jesus. As I've stressed over and over throughout this podcast, a sacrament contains two parts. There's the mystery that God does and the sacred oath that we take. In a sacrament, we find a commingling of both grace and faith. The beauty of sacraments is that we can't do it alone. God intentionally designed sacraments that way. We can't baptize ourselves, just like we can't marry ourselves, just like we can't ordain ourselves. Sacraments require community. Now, as a Protestant, this was a foreign concept to me, partially because I didn't recognize that baptism was necessary for salvation. I saw salvation as very personal rather than communal. That's the case for many Protestant communities, though not all. I pointed to passages such as Romans 10.9, which says, quote, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, end quote. There's no mention of baptism here. Anyone can just call on the name of the Lord and they will be saved. So for me, I saw salvation as something very individualistic. But listen to what St. Paul says next in that passage, starting in verse 14, quote, but how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? End quote. In other words, how do we come to believe in Jesus? It requires community. I can't call on the name of the Lord if I don't believe in him. I can't believe in him if I've never heard of him. I won't have heard of him unless someone tells me about him. It requires community. A Protestant might say, no, it doesn't require the community, it requires the Bible. The Bible contains everything necessary for salvation. But wait a second, what is the Bible? The Bible is the teaching of the church, and the church preserved, authenticated, and compiled what we call the Bible. So when we read the Bible, we are listening to the preaching of the church throughout the ages. The story of the conversion of the centurion Cornelius in Acts 10 gives us a clear example of the role of the church in salvation. Cornelius first received a vision of a man in white. What did this messenger say? Did he say, Cornelius, this is what you need to do to be saved? No, he told Cornelius to send for Peter. When Peter arrived, Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and those around Cornelius. Then the Holy Spirit fell on those that were listening and then Peter baptized them. 
This story illustrates this cooperation between God and man. God could do all of this alone, but he doesn't. He draws us to himself while drawing us into community. Why? Why does God do it this way? The answer is because God, who is a communal being, a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has created us for community. This was the focus of episode six and the subject of our next episode. The church is the bride of Christ. You are not the bride of Christ. I am not the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And the church is also referred to as the body of Christ. A body is made up of many parts, just as the church is made up of many people. We who follow Jesus are part of the bride of Christ, but the bride isn't exclusive to only me or to only you. At the marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation 19, Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be fully united with his bride, the church. Revelation 19.9 says, quote, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. End quote. Why are those people blessed? Because those are the people that will be united with Christ. How do we become united with Christ? We not only give ourselves to Christ, but we also join the bride of Christ, the church. This is modeled for us in the Exodus story. How did one gain freedom from the Egyptians? They joined Moses and the rest of the Hebrews in following God through the Red Sea. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, starting in paragraph 845, states, quote, To reunite all his children, scattered and led astray by sin, the Father willed to call the whole of humanity together into his Son's church. The church is the place where humanity must rediscover its unity and salvation. The church is the world reconciled. She is that bark which, in the full sail of the Lord's cross, by the breath of the Holy Spirit, navigates safely in this world. According to another image dear to the church fathers, she is prefigured by Noah's ark, which alone saves from the flood. Outside the church, there is no salvation. How are we to understand this affirmation, often repeated by the church fathers? Reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ the head through the church, which is his body. Basing itself on scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. The one Christ is the mediator and the way of salvation. He is present to us in his body, which is the church. He himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism, and thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the church, which men enter through baptism as through a door. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. End quote. The phrase extra ecclesium nulla salus, outside the church there is no salvation, comes from the third century bishop St. Cyprian of Carthage. It is based not only on scripture, but on tradition and reason. The church is the bride and the body of Christ. How can one be in union with Christ if it is not a part of the bride or the body of Christ? The church is the minister of the sacraments. How can one believe if they haven't heard the gospel preached? How can one be baptized without the administration of the sacrament of baptism? Thus, the church is the vehicle of redemption. This is not to say that the church replaces Jesus's work of redemption, but that its purpose is to draw people into Jesus's redemptive work. Like Noah's ark that was built to save people from destruction, so the church is the ark of salvation. It is the vessel that God built to save us from eternal damnation. 
In fact, Catholic churches have a very appropriate word for the part of the church building where the mass takes place. It's called the nave. Nave means ship. In the nave, the sacraments are administered, baptism, confession, the Eucharist, confirmation, marriage, holy orders, and the consecration of the oil used for anointing the sick. You may be thinking, wait, are you saying that I have to be Catholic in order to be saved? Well, no, not exactly. The bottom line is that salvation is always up to God. Salvation is always on God's terms and always God's prerogative. But we also believe that God gave us very specific instructions on how to enter that salvation. We're told to believe and be baptized. Jesus tells us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. James tells us to confess our sins to each other. And so these sacraments are the ordinary means by which we receive God's extraordinary grace because God designed it that way and explicitly told us so. Therefore, we call the sacraments the ordinary means of salvation. The church knows no other means by which one can be saved. And because Jesus gave his authority to his apostles to preach, baptize, and make disciples, we believe that the church is the instrument or the vehicle which God uses to enter salvation. The church, in a sense, is Noah's Ark and Rahab's house. But we also have to recognize that God can operate through extraordinary means as well. He could decide to save someone on a remote island who never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And if he does, then that's God exercising his mercy. And at the end of the day, we are all saved by God's mercy. None of us can earn God's salvation. Whether we are saved through ordinary or extraordinary means, it's all due to God's generosity. When it comes to other non-Catholic Christian groups, such as Protestants, we recognize that most practice the sacrament of baptism. In fact, the Catholic Church does not generally re-baptize anyone that has been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We recognize that as a valid baptism. And so those who have been baptized have at least entered into that process of salvation. I use the word process deliberately because we believe that salvation is a process, not merely a one-time event. I talked about this in episode 44. We also believe that these churches are lacking the sacraments and the apostolic authority instituted by Jesus to further that process of salvation. And so while they are separated from the Catholic Church, we believe they are still part of that mystical body of Christ. Even though we are estranged from each other, we believe God is supernaturally holding us together in some way. Ultimately, though, we believe that God will bring us together in the fullness of unity in heaven. There is one church, one body, one bride of Christ. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're not going to have multiple weddings. It's not going to be, okay, Baptists, it's your turn to marry Jesus. Okay, Presbyterians, now it's your turn. Nor will those saved through ordinary means have one marriage supper, while those who are saved through extraordinary means have another. It's going to be one church that unifies with Christ. Therefore, we can say that eventually, at some point, all those who will be saved will fully enter and become part of that one church. As Catholics, we believe that we are that church established by Jesus. Jesus did not establish multiple churches. He established one church. We see Jesus give his authority to his apostles, and we see those apostles appoint the next generation of leaders all the way to today. It's what we call the apostolic succession, which was the focus of episode 39. We don't trace our origins back to an individual in the last 500 years. We trace them all the way back to Peter. Therefore, because we believe that the one holy Catholic and apostolic church is the Catholic church proper, we believe that eventually everyone who will be saved will become a part of the Catholic church. It might not happen in this lifetime, 
But if the church is the bride of Christ, and if the Catholic church is that church, then by logic, one must become a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church in order to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Let me go back to our opening illustration, the Exodus story. The Exodus story focuses on the ethnic group of people called the Hebrews, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, scholars believe that it wasn't just the Hebrews that escaped with Moses out of Egypt. Rather, it was a group of slaves who may have had all sorts of ethnic origins, including the Hebrews. Just like in the story of Rahab, they were saved because they followed Moses and went with the Hebrews, and in that process of escape, gained an identity as a Hebrew. It didn't really matter what their identity was in Egypt because they were merely slaves treated terribly and abusively. When they crossed the Red Sea, they became a people, a free people, God's people, and he would eventually lead them to the promised land. In the same way, God's mercy knows no limits, no boundaries, no borders, no ethnicities or skin color. Sin, pride, and brokenness may keep us estranged, but eventually, as we pass through the waters of death and into eternal life, we will experience the unifying power of God. He will bring us together and we will finally be one church. And that one church, that one bride, that one body will be united with our Savior for all of eternity. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.